I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is the Ring Run NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Kevin Clark, joined on a Wednesday afternoon by Nora Princiati. Nora, what's going on? Uh, not much, Kevin. I had a delightful holiday. And, uh, well, I guess we covered, we'd already covered that by the time we did the Sunday pod. All right. Well, it's okay, good to me, see let, you. Let, let, let me let's just tell say the that. listener what just happened. Let me tell the listener what just happened. <laughs> she didn't know what to say on the first iteration. And then she asked me to do it again so I could throw to a what's going on again to her. And then she still didn't I just, know what to like, say. This, we've talked about this before. What is going on is that I'm sitting here doing a podcast with you. It's, it's, it's a tough question to answer. As someone who's been on many I, podcasts, it's the worst part of podcasting, honestly, is answering that question. <laughs> Stephen, what's going on? Uh, my Uber account got hacked this morning. See? I, I actually See? have a thing. I got 80 See, notifications. that's a good answer. Some, okay, so some, what happened? I, I still don't know. Some driver called me and she was like, I'm here at the address, but it's not a it's not a building. It's just in the middle yeah. of nowhere. Where are you? And I was like, I didn't call an Uber. And she said, you're a VIP and you need to give me a code before you get in the car. I'm not a VIP. I don't know what's going on. Like Joe so, Biden hacked my account or something. You're a VIP, someone, Stephen Ruiz. I appreciate that. So, so Stephen, someone hacked your account and was ordering Ubers from nowhere to nowhere. They're not even using it. I don't also, know what, what the does Joe Biden have was. to do with this. I, that was the most. He politicized I, it. He's a VIP. I don't know. Oh, Came up with Joe Biden. Okay. I'm in D.C. Tough I, ones. President. I don't think Joe Biden's calling well, a lot of Ubers. I'm going to tell you something, guys. I'm not this, either, though. This guaranteed I'm never going to ask what's going on to either of you guys ever again. <laughs> Thank, Mission accomplished. So, we're going to do three different things today on the show. Um, we're going to start with talking about John Madden, who passed away on Tuesday at age 85. Then we're going to do a quick preview of a couple of the big games this weekend. And then we're going to get to our most important people of 2021. Really fun uh, segment. We've, d- we've done it the last few years. It's really interesting to see sort of the most important people who whose tentacles sort of reach throughout the game or who change something or just somebody who's going to to dominate, um, you know, not only has dominated all year, but is going to dominate the next couple of years. It's really interesting list to sort of take the temperature of where the year has gone. But we'll start with John Madden, um, who is one of the most important people in the history of football, one of the most remarkable people in the history of football. Um, I could talk about him for an entire episode, um, but I'll start with you, Nora. Um, You know, it's interesting because I think that for the people above us uh, in a generation, John Madden means something else. Um, For, you know, people over 50, he means a coach. For people probably over 40, it's a broadcaster. For me, it was a broadcaster, Um, although he was, I was quite young when he retired. Um, and for, for most of the people under 
40, 30. He's, he's the video game pioneer. He's the guy in commercials. At one point in the 80s, he hosted Saturday Night Live. So for every generation of football fan or every generation of American, Madden means something else um, to them or means multiple things to them. Uh, Nora, what did he mean to you? Yeah, well, it's funny. Actually, I got a call late last night um, from somebody asking if I would, you know, go on a show and, and talk about him. And I sort of had to say, look, there's a million people that I could recommend you call, but I'm not really the right age to do this. Like, right. I, I didn't live through it. Uh, so I don't think that I'm the right person for this. And that's sort of how I feel now is that, like, I've just spent the morning reading a lot of other people's reflections and experiences. And, you know, the two things that sort of struck me was one, it, it is funny how I think most of the people in sort of our age range, they hear Madden, they think of the video game. Mm -hmm. And just first and foremost, to mean that many different things to that many different people is evidence of just a really, really, really remarkable career. But I was thinking a little bit more about it. And it's funny because I think we've been talking a lot recently about, you know, debates about analytics and how people mm -hmm. consume football and, and smart football versus dumb football. And we've talked about the substance of those debates a lot. But then also, I think we've talked about some of the frustrating ways that they play out where people just talk over each other and are not necessarily having good faith arguments. And I, I think one of the things that tied together a lot of different people's reflections on John Madden was that he was someone who cared deeply about football, mm -hmm. enlightened a lot of people about the strategy behind the game, the nuances of scheme, the nuances of technique on the field, but always did it just as kind of a, a lovable everyman guy. And he probably was not that, right? Like he was a really, really remarkable person who had a life that almost no one lives. But mm -hmm. he was able to teach people about football, whether that was as a coach or a broadcaster or through Madden, right? Like Madden is how a lot of people learn about football right. and was able to do that in ways that were accessible and not arrogant. And that is something we really need more of. So that was what I was thinking about as I was sort of reading different people's posts and, and reflections about him this morning. Yeah, and it was interesting because um, obviously there were some really big calls I remember watching in real time. We, Bill and Brian Curtis this morning talked about something that I thought of almost immediately uh, when, when the news came down the Madden Pass, which was the first Tom Brady Super Bowl, which talking about goosebumps, where he actually didn't like that the Patriots were being so aggressive on the final drive. Um, that to me, but he knew, he knew how good Tom Brady was. He knew how special it was. It was almost like he was telling the future um, in that last drive, in that last quarter, in that that game in general. He knew how good Tom Brady was going to be at a time when, you know, he was still the kind of the Cinderella story. Um, I saw a clip this morning of uh, Cowboys touchdown where he it's like a five-yard run and Madden doesn't even call the touchdown. He's just giddy and laughing that Larry Allen is just <laughs> moving people. Like he, that, that was what excited him. Like he loved football in that way. And even like there was a, obviously the T.O. catch over the Packers um, in the playoff game is something that, that's usually famous with Summerall and Madden. And I was listening to the call and I think that there's an urge now to, okay, there's the catch and we're going to say exactly what happened. It was this route. Um, it was this coverage. Here's, here's where, where, um, where, where the eyes were of the quarterback. Here's what the linebacker did. There's an urge there that I understand. I, you know, in the media ecosystem, everything is very refined. We understand that. 
But John Madden just kept saying, unbelievable. And it worked. It worked. Like, it worked. <laughs> and obviously, Madden is going to, at some point, get to what happened. But he was so excited about the play. He just kept saying, unbelievable. Same with the um, San Antonio Holmes catch in, in, uh, in the Super Bowl against the Cardinals. He didn't immediately fill everything with analysis. He just let it breathe and would just be giddy about the sport of football. He loved football, and football loved him back. And that's the story of John Madden. Stephen Ruiz, as someone who appreciates um, the nuances of scheme about learning about football, about education. Like Madden started a lot of that. Yeah. I, like many people, like that was my entry point into the game and especially X's and O's. I know there was like some bad takes out there on Twitter about how he glorified this violent sport, but I honestly think he did the opposite. I think before Madden came along, I don't know how much of the emphasis on X's and O's and strategy there was. I think he's the one that really highlighted that and had got a lot of people talking about it. I don't think there would be, this space that I am currently in where I'm analyzing X's and O's without him, to be honest. I think many people that write like me had that same background that I did. I learned the game from that video game. Yeah, I think what's um, really lovely is, is, I mean, Stephen, I think you're great at this in writing and in podcasting. I think Ben Solak has been so, so wonderful at doing this. Is the special thing is when the, the urge to explain and to analyze comes from a place of, here's this unbelievable, exciting thing. We, it's making me feel all of these things. Now, after we've processed the emotion of it, now I want to understand it because it's so special and cool. And I think that's, you know, we can all, we can all think about that a little bit more as like explaining things because they're cool and exciting and special, not because it's a way to sort of talk down at people or mm-hmm. prove that you know more or something. And, and you know, right. I think sports media can can always use more of that. Yeah, we need more John Madden's. I mean, th- that's also the thing is kind of the, the overarching point is it's okay to love football. Like you don't have to have like this high 35,000 foot uh, take every single time. Like it's okay to just be like, this is really, really cool. That's sports flipping awesome. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it was interesting. I was watch. I watched both the football life that NFL Network put on last night, which has been on for a few years. And then obviously the all Madden documentary over the weekend. And it was amazing to hear. I'd only even interacted with John Madden twice. And that part of that is I wish I was older in that case because I wish I was around when he was engaging with, with, with the media more. I talked to him once on the phone in 2016. And that was, that was like actually starstruck. Um, same. Where I, I interviewed him in 2016 and I had the same yeah. experience. Like well, it's I, the only yeah. person I've ever interviewed where I was like, holy shit, I'm talking to John Madden. Yeah, I probably did a better job in the interview. Oh, just yeah, to be clear. 100%. Yeah. Um, no, also, but, big um, 2016 for John Madden. Yeah, huge, huge. Um, no, doing so, the Kevin Clark interview, doing the Stephen Reeves sure, interview. Stephen, I'm sure we had the same thing. It was, was, like, was the Miller like hearing commercial. his voice. Yeah, you're hearing his voice and you're just like, oh my God. Like, that's mm-hmm. John Madden's voice. And you and I and Nora have been lucky enough um, and blessed enough to, to be around some of the legends of the game, um, especially the current game. But I don't have that feeling. Like, I do not have that feeling around because it, it, it's a little bit normal. I didn't grow up with a lot of these guys being, you know, I wasn't eight listening to these guys. Even when it's Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, they seem more mortal because I remember when Bill Belichick was getting hired and he wasn't anything. People even in 2001 were saying, what's with this guy? Tom Brady, same way. I remember him playing in Michigan and coming out for a series at a time with Drew Henson. Um, John Madden was always a god uh, in football. And, and and that's why he just, when you hear his voice coming through the speakerphone, you, I kept being like, oh my God, I saw him once at the, uh, at Canton at the Hall of Fame and he just looked 
like he looked different than everybody else. He just looked like a legend. And there, there's not really, you know, Rupert Murdoch had this line in the documentary where he said, if you don't know America, if you're an Englishman or an Irishman or an Australian and you, you wanted to, he wanted someone to meet an American, he would want him to meet John Madden, um, which I thought was really interesting. Peter King had the same thing um, where he said that, that basically the, the best thing about John Madden is he stopped to smell the roses. He drove across the country because he wanted to see things. And they, when he was a coach, he hated the fact that you would go on airplanes, go to the airport, go to the hotel, coach the game, and then leave. He wanted to meet people in America. He wanted to be um, have, have boots on the ground. He didn't think you had experienced life by just being in airports. I completely agree with that. Something you know I, I do all the time, especially on the camp tour, where I just drive eight hours all the time for the past nine years. Uh, but he was, he was an amazing American and amazing figure. Yeah, and I think the voice thing, is a product of i mean that's like how we consume john madden right we didn't especially younger people who didn't watch him coach we heard his voice the whole time we never really saw him we saw him at the beginning of the games and that's it and then if you play the video game you listen to him for hours on end like every day during the summer whenever you could play video games so i think that was a big thing he just sounded like football i don't know if there's a better way to put it yeah yeah i mean like it, it, it... For everything he did, I mean, head coach of 32, Super Bowl champion by 40, um, you know, best broadcasting career three years after that. Uh, everything he did, uh, he did perfectly. And and I, there will never be, this was said in the documentary, this was said in the football life, but it, it remains true. There won't be anybody even close to John Madden. I mean, it would be like if, if you know, if Sean McVay won a Super Bowl, two years later retired at 40-something and decided to become not only the best uh, the, 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 the best broadcaster of all time, but did video games, did commercials. I mean, like it was completely, completely different thing. Um, anything else guys? All right. So let's move on to the game previews. Got a big one this week. Chiefs at Bengals, which. Yeah. We have to pick this game and I've been going back and forth on it. I'm going to give you the floor, Nora. Where do you want to go with this? What stands out? Well, I, I want to talk about how we feel like the Chiefs defense is going to fare against Burrow, yeah. obviously coming off a record-setting performance. And Seth Kalina wrote a really good piece on yes. PFF this week that was highlighting Burrow kind of leveling up in the second half of this season. And in particular, some of the things he highlighted were how much Burrow has improved on scramble plays and making plays out of structure in the second half of this season and how that ability and just his ability to win one-on-one basically has made the Bengals able to do what they like to do, which is, you know, a lot of empty, a lot of asking their playmakers to win one-on-one battles. And it it sort of highlighted that there's always going to be this push-pull between when Burrow sort of opens up through both how Cincinnati likes to play on offense, but also through his own play style, opens himself up to taking a lot of sacks. Part of that is their offensive line as well. And it's interesting because we've watched the Chiefs defense completely write itself over a a similar period of time in in the later part of the season. And I think that's going to be a big element of this game because if Kansas City is, is consistently able to get pressure then maybe they make the Bengals pay a little bit for how much time Burrow is spending, you know, taking time, getting outside of the pocket, trying to scramble, but also being a little bit vulnerable in that. 
and allowing Cincinnati to to keep playing a decent amount of empty. Although one of the things that Seth highlighted is that they've actually done that a little bit less, but they still, you know, they're not scheming him a lot of stuff on like play action where they're just getting somebody open. They're asking their players to win one-on-one. And I think whether or not Kansas City is going to be able to get pressure is kind of going to determine how effective that can be in this game. So I'm curious what you guys think about how the Chiefs defense matches up with with how Burrow's playing right now. Steven? Yeah, I think this is a big Chris Jones game, especially against that interior line. I think he has to dominate the game if the Chiefs are going to slow down the Bengals' offense. But I also think, I think this game is kind of simple. I think it comes down to whether Burrow can make those deep perimeter throws that he has been making for the last couple of weeks. Because I think Spagnolo is going to take away the middle of the field. That's something that he always does. It's where he starts on defense. Like Nora said, I think the pressure thing is going to be a big factor. If Burrow can ex- escape that and throw those dimes down the field to Jamar Chase, I think that changes the game. And I think he has to hit on those because I really think the Chiefs are going to score a lot of points in this game. Yes. Um, so Ben Roethlisberger is sort of a different category, but I believe Legereus Need was the only player last week in the secondary to give up more than 35 yards. Burrow, much better than Roethlisberger. I understand that. Um, but the secondary can can hold its own. Um, it's interesting to me. So first of all, a couple stats uh, about Joe Burrow right now. Um, fourth in the NFL with 56 completions over 20 yards. Tied for first with 10 completions of 50 plus yards. Um, I believe this is from The Athletic and Shil Kapadia that Joe Burrow has more completions of 50 plus yards than the Ravens, Lions, Patriots, Falcons, Eagles, Broncos, and Texans combined. Okay. He's doing good Pretty stuff. Pretty good. Um, they're third in the AFC right now. I can't get a handle on this game. Um, and and I'm 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 curious, Stephen, where you would go as far as a pick goes. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to steal your take. Okay. I'm taking the Chiefs. I'm taking the Chiefs because I do think I do think those throws are going to be hard to hit, especially as it gets colder and it gets windier and the weather gets worse. I, I don't think you can rely on that week to week. I mean, if Burrow continues this, then like, holy hell, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. I don't think there's any denying that anymore if he beats this Chiefs team and keeps up with Mahomes. Because like I said, I think they're going to score a lot of points. The Bengals have been playing... I think they've been playing better defense of late, but this is a different animal. And the way Mahomes looked last week was different from anything I've seen him in a non-Raiders game. Like, he was playing in rhythm. He was hitting the back of his drop, and the ball was coming out. And it, and when it wasn't, he was going through his progressions, hitting his check down. Like, it's the best I've ever seen Mahomes, and which is a scary thought. And I think he's just only going to get better as the season goes on. Hmm. Okay, so this is a huge, obviously, AFC playoff game. So the the Chiefs are 11 and 4 right now. Titans are 10 and 5, Bengals are 9 and 6. I don't anticipate the Bengals making up that kind of ground, but it still is interesting at the top of the AFC to have a win, to have a, have a tiebreaker, you never know what's going to happen. Uh Nora, your pick? I'm going with I'm going with Kansas City as well. And uh, we should say right now this game looks like it's relatively untouched by COVID. Uh Kansas City is right. expecting Travis Kelsey to start practicing again this week maybe today i'm not sure but it looks like if you look at the list i am very grateful that so far this game which seems like it could be one of the games of the season feels like it's going to be an honest representation of close to each team's best effort which is not something that we can count on right now with the unprecedented number of player positives that we're seeing 
I still think that it's, I think it's going to be a high scoring game. And it, it seems like the Chiefs have, by the way, the Chiefs have convinced me that they're back. I was a little skeptical for, for a bit there, but I'm convinced. And if the Chiefs are back and they're getting Kelsey, I think they're ultimately going to, going to win a shootout. The Bengals have not won three games in a row this season. And they've actually, every time I try to hype them up on this podcast, they disappoint me. So I've learned my lesson. I think it's going to be Kansas City. The, the Bengals will still win, make the playoffs. They'll still be a threat in January, but the Chiefs are going to win this game. Um, all right. Speaking of the Titans, they play the Dolphins this week. Let's do a Dolphins discussion. Everybody loves those, Nora. <laughs> Why do they? Uh, people are, what was people the are, bitterness there? I didn't, no, it's it, it's it. It's it. People, there's never a dolphin discussion you can have that doesn't have fury from all sides. Just all sides. Everyone is kind of Tuanon folks are have one viewpoint. The dolphins fans who don't want Tua going forward have one viewpoint. People who just think that the dolphins aren't very good have one viewpoint. And now, like dolphins fans, nor have I don't know if you've seen this. Somehow it's become. Like I, I've been branded as anti-Tua, I guess, even though Ben is the one who initially wrote the article. Stephen is also anti-Tua. I'm anti... The, my viewpoint is the Dolphins can be a very good franchise, but the Tua thing right now seems unsustainable to me. That's that's my only viewpoint. They can make the playoffs this year. They can be very good. Doug Kyad at uh, Pro Football Focus, our buddy, um, who once did this podcast from a Taco Bell um, parking lot. Um, Elite. He... He had the viewpoint basically that league sources are still extremely torn on what they're going to do with Tua. Do they try to go out and, and kind of insert themselves into the uh, court, mega quarterback sweepstakes? And maybe they should. You know, the offensive line is not nearly good enough for, you know, I, I can't imagine someone like Aaron Rodgers would want to come to, to Miami. I can't imagine somebody like Russell Wilson would want to come to Miami right now. They have the defense for it. They don't have the line for it. Anyway, putting that all aside, Titans at Dolphins. Nora, where do you start? Well, the funny thing is that it's it's not what happens in this game is like not remotely about Tua, right? Like the Dolphins offense has been pretty consistent all season. It is extremely limited through a combination of, of Tua's arm strength, mostly the offensive line. They do, I think, close to as good of a job as you can with those limitations. Waddle's been incredible at at, you know adding like five yards per reception after the catch, which helps a lot if you're having to, like Tua does, get rid of the ball in like two and a half seconds. But the offense is just sort of like... Just, just for context, just for context, um, Miami's offensive line is tied for worse in the NFL, actually with the Titans, and they've allowed Miami has a league high 217 pressures. Great, great stuff. So like the, the Dolphins offense just has to like chug along with baby step after baby step after baby step. The thing that's interesting here is their defense is what has spurred their yes. their turnaround, their seven-game winning streak. Now, that has coincided with a couple things. One, uh, midway through the season, they decided to get even more aggressive about blitzing. Also, midway through the season, they started playing incredibly bad teams and quarterbacks. The, this winning streak has come against, you know, Mike Glennon and Zach Wilson and Ian Book. And I think to a degree, you have to say, okay, well, they can't help who they're playing. And a seven-game winning streak is nothing to sneeze at. I think the thing that is really impressive about it is just that they were there to take advantage of it when they had such a bad start to the season. I mean, I, I do think that, look, there's a reason that 
no team that started one and seven has ever made the playoffs and the Dolphins have a chance to. Part of the reason is that you can't be a particularly good team if you start one and seven. The other reason is that a lot of teams that do that are going to give up. So I think it's a testament to them that they that they didn't. But I do think that given how much they blitz, they are the second heaviest blitzing team in the NFL. I think it is worth being a little skeptical about how that is going to hold up when you are not doing that against quarterbacks who range from the top end from a very, very struggling Lamar Jackson all the way to Ian Book, right? Like, it is a pretty significant likelihood that the Titans offense and Ryan Tannehill, especially, you know, when you're getting receivers back, is going to be able to make them pay for that in a way that their competition so far hasn't. So I'm a little bit skeptical about Miami being able to uh, sort of replicate those results against better teams. I still think it's kind of incredible that they've gotten this far and just didn't fold at that point in the first place. I half agree with you. So first of all, if I'm picking a Super Bowl winner, an AFC title game participant or whatever, I would, I would consider the Ian books of the world and just the run they've been on of, of playing bad quarterbacks. But I think that, First of all, there's not a lot of teams that could have started one and seven and take advantage of, of that run of quarterbacks. We've seen a lot of crappy quarterbacks win games this year. Again, if last year was the weirdest year of all time, this is the second weirdest year of all time. Teams are shorthanded. And we've seen, by the way, Brian Flores build something in the middle of the year when he shouldn't have. That first year when they were embarrassed by Lamar Jackson by 50 points, they're getting blown out. Every you know, Guys are getting spun around. There were guys, remember Jerome Baker telling me, that he was learning the names of guys literally like in the huddle because they were turning the roster so much. It was a disaster. And yet Brian Flores went out in one game. He shouldn't. And so there's kind of a case study already in Brian Flores being a really good coach as the year goes along. His guy's not quitting. Sure. Last year was really weird down the stretch. They probably should have made the playoffs, but um, I've, I've seen this before Flores, So I'm not surprised by it. And you can only beat who's in front of you. So I, I'm not totally discounting what they've done. Steven, you seem like you wanted to interject when we we're talking about the Dolphins O-line. <laughs> oh yeah, I I was gonna ask like you said they're t- they're like the worst offensive line. What was that based on? Uh, pass blocking efficiency. All right, I have a I have a bone to pick with the, the pass block win rate uh, stat, especially when it comes to the Dolphins. I think it. Makes what about them the look- what well, the pressures is bad? Yeah, I know no, their offensive line is bad, but I think okay. like the advanced met- metrics don't capture the fact that like pass block win rate, for instance, says they're mm-hmm. one of the worst offensive lines of the last couple of years. But they run so many RPOs, and I don't know how you measure pass blocking when the offensive line literally is not pass blocking. They're blocking for a run. Right. I think that makes them look worse than they are. I think they are bad, but they're not historically bad, in my opinion. I don't know. I, I think don't think they're, they're historically bad. I just think they're not. They're they're one of the worst statistically in the NFL. That's just the big two anon talking thing. That's that's why I'm bringing it up. I think. Oh, the RPO thing. Yeah, or no, like the offensive line. That's why they run the RPOs. It's not because Tua is like a limited quarterback in some respect. It's because they don't have the Oh, it's the line. To do drop back pass. It's not because their quarterback is throwing with, but it's not his natural hand. That's not why they're running. <laughs> but I think that I don't hate Tua. Like I liked Tua as a prospect. I enjoy watching him play sometimes. I resent the offense that they're employing for him. It's hard to watch. It's like watching a Mac team. Like at one point, he was over 50% play action passing. And that, that was like mostly RPOs. It's just hard to watch. It's a college offense. And that's why can I, I don't Can, can enjoy I push it. back on that? I don't want to sound like yeah. two and on, but like they're doing the best with what they have, right? 
that, like, that was going to be my question about. too. Is, do you this, resent oh, it because yeah. it's just not fun to watch? Or do yeah, you resent yeah, exactly. it because... Because uh, I, I agree with you. It's a little painful. But to Kevin's point, what else are they going to do? No, we, no. We, it's we, a, no, it's but see, see, Right, but my, my point is like, uh, this podcast, we've gone over and over and over again about how the smartest teams don't... They, they come from a standpoint of what can you do now? What can't you do? Right. And like building around what you have, making sure you're maximizing the ability of your players. The Dolphins were dealt an interesting hand. Obviously, they took Tua over Justin Herbert. That was a mistake. Yeah, they dealt themselves but, that interesting hand. Yeah, no, no, to be of course fair. they did. I'm, sa- I'm saying that they were dealt that hand. And now the 2021 Dolphins, who are not, the t- you know, they are uh, probably not the team we thought they were after the, the, the Dolphins process. We probably, we probably thought there'd be a little more talent there. Frankly, on the offensive line, they just picked the wrong players. Um, the process was good. The the um, the cap, draft capital was good. All that stuff. They just picked some of the wrong players. That is true of quarterback as well. But they're making the most of what the 2021 Dolphins have. No, I totally agree. I think the coaches are doing an excellent job. I, I don't have anything against them. I just hate watching it. And I'd rather <laughs> not. But I agree that it's the it's like what they should be running. I think the Patriots should actually be doing it too. I think they should be running more RPO with Mac Jones. I think that would help them create explosive plays. But yeah, I, I don't know. But I agree with Nora like 100% on the bad quarterback thing. The way they blitz, where they're just blitzing everybody and they don't hide it and they're just playing covers here and they're like, you guys, you got to beat it. Uh, Mike White, our, our PJ Walker, and they don't beat it, our Ian Book. It's a, bad, it's a bad quarterback defense. And we saw this in Carolina at the beginning of the year when Carolina started 3-0 and and they were number one in every defensive metric. It's because they were playing terrible quarterbacks and they kept blitzing the hell out of them. Then they play Dak Prescott, who's one of the smartest quarterbacks in the league, and he picks them apart because it's a bad quarterback defense. And I think that's how the Dolphins are getting by. When they played regular defense over the first half of the season, it did not look like this when they were playing real quarterbacks. So that's why I'm skeptical of this win streak. And I get that they're beating what's in front of them. And usually that's a good take, in my opinion. But when it's Ian Book, I have to push back. I will say this. I understand the CDC guidelines changed, but I do think Ian Book may have ended the NFL caring about COVID. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can't blame them. I, I mean, I can blame them, but... Like, I so, so just so everybody knows. Of. So basically, Ian Book plays this game on Monday night, and the next day the NFL is like, you can come out of COVID protocols after five days. You don't have to have a negative test. Um, it's up to the doctor, and you can't be showing symptoms. You can't have a fever. So Carson Wentz, who, who went on the list on Tuesday... Is probably going to be able to play this weekend. Um, it's, we're, we're probably never going to have an Ian Book situation again. And I don't, I'm being a little bit flippant when I say that, but I'm also saying that some of these games are the reason the NFL was extremely quick to change the protocols. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, 100%. I think it's some of the games, and also uh, this is two sides of the same coin, some of the games and also the fact that like there were 100 player positives in a day. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, like that—that that, just the 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 situation in the league—they had to adjust it, and it, it went hand in hand. We'd seen too many games either postponed, either whatever. I mean, but that's Ian Book is probably the last quarterback we'll see like that this year. That'd be my well, guess. and also the fact that like Delta Airlines asked the CDC to to reduce the quarantine, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> I, I will say this about the Titans-Dolphins matchup. I am interested to see how Brian Flores attacks Ryan Tannehill because Brian Tannehill is like that guy. We don't know if he's like really good or just kind of good or maybe just okay. And I think Brian Flores is going to tell us how he feels about Ryan Tannehill, 
Ryan Tannehill yeah. based on how he calls this defense? Does he think he's not Ian Book, obviously, but like a lesser quarterback? Any any other Titans talk since we just spent the last five minutes on two and on? Uh, I like wow. I'm so bored by the Titans. Like I call me when Derrick Henry comes back. And there's a chance that he comes back from playoffs. I will say this about the Titans. I think they're the team that needs the number one seed the most. And if they get the number one seed, I think you have to add them to the list of teams that could win the Super Bowl in the AFC. But if they're playing in the wild card and like they're kind of working Derrick Henry back, I don't think, I think they're going to be one and done. So I think they're the team with the widest range of outcomes over the next month or so. I think that's fair. But I, I do think that the, uh, the 49ers game, I mean, AJ Brown makes a difference, right? We can at least say that after seeing Thursday. Yes. Um, do running backs even have injuries anymore? Like Cam Akers might play this weekend after an Achilles injury. No, it's like running back. Do running back injuries matter? No, it's just like these guys. It's like, oh, this guy's out for the year. And then like eight weeks later, it's like, well, he's going to come off IR. He's going to be fine this weekend. What the hell's going on? Like, I thought Derrick Henry was definitely done for the season. And then like two weeks later, like you said, it was like, oh, yeah, he's going to come back. He's working on Maybe week 17. Right. Like, what? It's a fast healer. What exploded? Um, All right. Pick, Nora. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, I'm picking the Titans. Me too. Steven? I'm going to pick the Dolphins. That was <laughs> what? that was my way of saying I don't believe in Ryan Tannehill, and I think Brian Flores is going to blitz the hell out of him. And Ryan Tannehill takes a lot of sacks, and he holds onto the ball a bunch. I, he's going to, I think he's going to, like, fumble a couple times and throw a pick or two. I think that wow. he's going to take advantage of that. Very specific prediction, by the way. Wow. Not setting myself up to look like an idiot and get tweeted at by t- angry Titans fans on Sunday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Well, you get word Dolphins fans. Um, Nora and I are going to have the Dolphins fans. I'm a pro-Dolphins pundit. I like what they've done over the past three years. I just think that they're this this whole thing's not sustainable. So anyway, uh, all right, let's get to our five most important people. Uh, as I've said, we did this last couple of years. It's always a fun exercise. We'll start with number five, and we'll start with Nora Pinciotti. So we're gonna go. I'm gonna give you five, four, three, two, one. I'm gonna give you no, my whole list. We're gonna give me five. You're gonna give me five, and we're gonna go around. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, my number five five person of 2021 is Micah Parsons for oh, oh. I, didn't, I didn't even think about him on my list that's great oh I, I look rookie quarterbacks dominate so many awards right but if, if you want to isolate the rookie who has sort of made the biggest splash this season I think it's Micah Parsons and that's tied into a Cowboys defense that has been, you know, the, the sort of passive aggressive way to put it is extremely opportunistic. And I think that's true. I mean, I think they've thrived more based on timely turnovers and big plays than all around super, super solid defense. But I also think that when, you know, if Dak and their offense are, are healthy and are firing, that doesn't really matter. And the fact that they're good and the fact that they can, get extra possessions and make big impact plays makes them a really, really scary team. 
And I think in terms of on the field impact and also just sort of what the conversation has been, Micah Parsons is the player that is emblematic of that. I mean, you can say Diggs too, but I think it's Micah Parsons. Steven. He's get, he's getting Lawrence Taylor comps. I don't think the comps are good, but the fact that he's getting them says something about how good he is. And he's finally one of these. Don't do that. No, Nora's going to know this, but don't run that past Bill Belichick. <laughs> yeah, I would. He would kill. Me. He freaks. But, Who was it a couple years ago, Nora? Someone mentioned a Lawrence Taylor comp, and Bill was like, "Don't ever do that again." Oh, someone at a pre- They were. I forget who it was. He was just like, "Yeah, don't." don't. He was like, "Don't even." Don't even joke about that. I think it was a Patriots player, too. Wow, there's your problem. I'm not sure it was an opponent. It was Matt Jones. Van Noy. <laughs> <laughs> it was Matt Jones. <laughs> he was just like, you can't do that. You just can't do that. I think he thinks that Lawrence Taylor is the best player of all time. If I'm not mistaken. He's got a good argument. Yeah. But I oh, think it was Khalil just... Mack. Just kidding. It was Khalil Mack. Okay. That's even funnier. There was but, somebody who was legitimately headline. Good. Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick like, no. does not appear amused by question comparing Khalil Mack to Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> he wasn't even entertaining. I love how they have to hedge it in the headline. He doesn't appear confused. <laughs> he but really wasn't amused. This, is this like the first time like one of these hybrid players has actually hit? Um. In what, what do you? What, how do you define that exactly? Like I, like a Isaiah Simmons, like a guy where you're like, yeah. I don't know what position he's going to be. Because usually those guys are. I mean, cool this has been the year for that, right? Like, even in Owusu um, Koromoa, there had been sure. so many years where we yeah. had those big conversations before the draft about, like, here is the, you know, the modern hybrid player who's going to revolutionize football. And a lot of the times it didn't really come to fruition. And I think something that's been under the radar this season is that a number of those guys have been real impact players sort of from the jump. And, and that's a really good point, Stephen. Also, one of the- what Bill said was, now, wait a minute. We're talking about Lawrence Taylor now. I'm not putting anybody in Lawrence Taylor's class. Do you think if Lawrence Taylor asked the uh, New Year's resolution question, he would have answered it? Yeah, he would yes. have. 100%. Yes, 100%. 100%. It was reading, reading more, a book a month. Um, well, it's funny, Stephen, because like Dan Buchanan, obviously at the beginning of the last decade, was, was rumored to be kind of the guy who was going to change the game. Didn't really happen. Rumored. Um, per sources. Well, I mean, oh, that was the big thing is we're going to call him the money backer and we're going to have him all over yeah. the field. Yeah. And it just didn't really work out. And you always hear this. Jabril Peppers was another one um, where he was going to play a bunch of different uh, positions and he turned into a pretty typical NFL player. Isaiah Simmons probably needed, um, you know, I, Isaiah Simmons is still an interesting prospect, but he's not the the sport changer. Um Parsons is an interesting case on that one. And I, 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 I look forward to seeing his development, but also just kind of how his career develops, what they do with him. I mean, it's really, really fascinating. Who's your number five? Well, I mean, part of, so oh, we need to move on, but it, it is interesting that this in part happened by accident. Yes. Right? Gonna, like yeah. he, injuries happen and he's playing on the edge more and suddenly he's getting Lawrence Taylor comps don't tell Bill Belichick, right? Which is fine. Stuff happens that people don't, See coming. Who's comping him to Lawrence day. Taylor? I don't know. I've seen a couple of them. I've, it's mostly okay. people pushing back against the comp, so it could be nobody. But so nobody, yeah. nobody ever did it, and it was what a weird was actually, straw was, man. What a it, weird specific straw man. It was actually Bill Belichick who did it. Yeah, he brought. He was floating it. Um, Stephen, who's Got your it number on the five? Uh, my, I didn't rank mine, but I'll go with uh, Matthew Stafford. I'm. Gonna, I think. Thought what happens? 
I don't think that it's settled yet whether this was a good trade or not, because just because of what's happened of late and his performance has kind of tailed off. But I think what happens over the next month could go a long way in influencing what happens in the offseason for teams that are kind of in that same spot that the Rams were with Jared Goff, where they have a quarterback they've invested a lot in. They don't know whether they should move on or not, how fans will react. I think if the Rams go on a deep playoff run, it's going to be a lot easier for, say, the Browns to move on from Baker Mayfield because they can point to a success story. Usually that's the reason why they don't move on because they're scared of what's going to happen after. Like, especially for the Browns, who had this, they have this long history of not having luck with quarterbacks. But if you, if you see the Rams do it with Matthew Stafford, who's not like this elite, great quarterback, he's a very flawed quarterback. He's just the quarterback that allows you to do different things than a Jared Goff or these play-action quarterbacks. I don't know. I think that influences the offseason. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Nora? Thoughts? Number four? No, no. What Thoughts on Matthew Stafford? I think that's a good one. I think also because if you go back to, look, like Matthew Stafford has been a major story of the of the regular season, but also who did we talk about more in the offseason yeah. than Matthew Well, Stafford? and also, also, if he goes to San Francisco, everything changes. Everything changes. Right. We know right. we know they were both both Shanahan and McVay were in Cabo trying to get him. Great stuff. So great there stuff. you go. Uh number four, Norm. Oh wait, I've got number so five. I, sorry, sorry, sorry. I have a list. Oh here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did I did the thing again where I a couple weeks ago, just everybody know, a couple weeks ago I got really sick in the middle of the podcast. It was when Brad Spielberger and Steven and I were were doing our lists. And I just I was like, I can't talk, so I'm just not gonna give my take on the whole thing, and nobody ever noticed. It was great. It was wonderful. I just kept saying, Stephen, Brad, Stephen, Brad. It was great. Um, I honestly thought it was your best pod. Yeah, it was one of the greats. It was one of the greats. Because in the middle of the podcast, I was like, I actually just realized I'm too sick to do this. So I'm just going to say names. I was on the pod, and I didn't even notice it. So great Yeah, so it's called being a grinder. Look into it. True prep. Um, all right. My number five is Josh Lambeau. Um, so... I think that there's a, um, I think Urban Meyer and his downfall is going to change a lot of things about football. I think, unfortunately, unfortunately, there shouldn't be. I think there might be a chilling effect with college coaches going forward. Now, part of that is that I had assumed a couple of years ago that um, the merging of the high school game, the college game, and the pro game into one sort of mega scheme uh, would mean that Lincoln Riley or Brian Kelly or some of these guys would go to the NFL. And they've, you know, they've talked to the NFL, but those sort of college mega contracts have kept them down uh, in college and the college game's probably better off for it. Um, but I thought there was going to be more of an exodus. Instead, it's been Matt Rule. Instead, it's been Urban Meyer. Both of those guys lately have failed miserably and looks like Matt Rule's coming back. That's a separate deal. Um, but I think there'll be a chilling effect on college coaches coming to the NFL because of Urban Meyer. And Urban Meyer acted exactly like the worst case scenario for a college coach is he treats the guys like kids. Um, he tries to be a dictator. He tries to do the exact same stuff in college that he did in the pros. And um, I, I just think that uh, next time an owner looks at a college guy, he's going to see you know, Dave Aranda. I'm making that up, but he's going to say, wait a second, Urban Meyer came here, tried college shit, didn't work. Put that aside. Trevor Lawrence is going to have a new coach. Um, Trent Baalke is apparently coming back as GM, which is ludicrous. And I think that at this point, I mean, if Baalke stays, 
I don't want to be dramatic here, but Trent Baalke is a very bad general manager. And we need to put Trevor Lawrence on, on failed watch because he might be being failed by his organization. Okay. Um, Steven, you're the watch guy. What's the better term for that? Uh, Wasted watch? I think failed watch works. I don't okay. know. I can't come up with anything. Failed, wasted. Because Trevor Lawrence is a very good prospect who might, who might, because of the situation around him, be a guy who's looking for uh, a, a better situation in a handful of years. Uh, maybe sooner rather than later. It limits the amount, the, the list of coaches you can get. We've seen reports already from, from Jaguar beat writers saying that they think that maybe the pool becomes smaller because of certain people who wouldn't want to work with Trent Baalke. I don't know. But I do know that if Urban Meyer kept his job, a whole lot of stuff would have changed. I do know, by the way, if Urban Meyer had, had been feeling the NFL, he would have been a very different coach. He just didn't want to be there. I mean, that's the overarching lesson of Urban Meyer is it's not don't hire college coaches. It's not don't try to do this with scheme. It's don't hire Urban Meyer when he's over. You know, like the whole thing in boxing, they say is that uh, you don't age in, in years, you age in fights. And one day you're in a fight and then you're in a fight, you know, two months later and everyone goes, oh, wow, that last fight took a lot out of him. And I think in coaching, you age in jobs. And he was in Florida in, in a pretty high-pressure situation. He was in Ohio State in a pretty high, high situation. And when he got out of it, I don't know if he realized it. I don't know if anybody realized it. I don't know if Shad Khan realized it. But he was done. He was done. He had aged in jobs to the point that he wasn't ready to coach a team. And now there's going to be tentacles all over the league for a long time. Uh, Nora, number four. My number four is centers. I'm dubbing this the year of the center. <laughs> By the way, I found a way to work like 12 people into my top five people. And you guys are just going to have to live with it. But you haven't even, you're not even going to get to Tyler Lindenbaum, who's going to be a top 15 pick. Oh, yeah. Centers are back, baby. Tyler Linderbaum, not Lindenbaum. Centers are back. Centers are back. But uh, we had a conversation recently, and I think it was when we were talking about um, just how critical Rodney Hudson has proven to be for the Cardinals yeah. this season, where... We were talking about um, some of the off-season pods where I think, was it Mike Tannenbaum who was saying that um, Jim the way, it was Jim Monos who was saying that if he were talking to an owner right now about, you know, how you view franchise building. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, when, when he's in coaching interviews that they, they he used to have them rank the position, most important positions. And QB yeah. center yeah. was really high on the One, list. Two. One, two. And I think if you look at, for instance, look, obviously right now, I think our, our opinion of, of um, where the Chargers are is, is a little bit up and down, but the Chargers going getting Corey Lindsley. We talk about Hudson. Creed Humphrey yes. being just like an absolute revelation in Kansas City. Those have been really important moves for those teams. And it's always offensive linemen, particularly interior offensive linemen. They're going to fly under the radar. But I think we're seeing this year some of the results be sort of obvious enough where maybe we do have the year of the center and some of that stuff rises to the point where it's a little bit more noticeable, where people pay a little bit more attention. So congratulations to the centers. Steven, you can get to number four or you can give a center take. Uh, yeah, I think centers and just the offensive linemen quarterbacks who set protections are becoming way more important because of how defenses yes. are changing like it's we've talked about cover zero a lot this year especially with the dolphins there's different types of pressures we're seeing now newer pressures and i think that's huge and like that was a huge problem for the cardinals in years past because cliff 
comes from the air raid where their pass protection schemes aren't advanced NFL level pass protection schemes. And I think Hudson really solved that issue for them. I think it happened last year with the Bills. John Feliciano, he's not a center, but he sorted the protections for them. And that's why Josh Allen looks so good at the end of the year. He's getting loads of time in the pocket. So, yeah, I agree. Centers, they're having a big year. Well, and it's 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 the way that defenses are playing now. And it's also that young quarterbacks are, are playing so quickly. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you shortcut that development? Well, you're not going to get your rookie quarterback to be able to understand, to be able to see the defenses and, and be able to make the checks and, and understand right away. The way to shortcut it is to have the guy in front of him be able to do it for him a little bit. So I, I, if we see, and there's no reason to believe that we won't see these young quarterbacks playing quickly in their careers going forward, I, I think we'll continue to see the, the center position being really, really critical. Is this going to be, Nora, is your list going to be like how Forbes is 30 under 30? It's like 600 people. Um, well, I only mentioned three centers. So, so you're, if not, we count add, that you're as not putting four, in all 32 centers who start in the league. It's right? also one of my people arguably is only half a person. So Uh-oh. there's complicated math Uh-oh. here on the list. <laughs> I beg your pardon? You'll find out. Is this going to get problematic? (laughs) All right. All right. Steven, number four. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to stick on the John Madden theme. I'm going to go Peyton Manning. I think the Manning. Oh, good one. I love that. I thought the Manning cast was going to be something that I didn't care for and didn't watch. But it was like awesome. And I was like tuning into Monday Night Football to watch the Manning cast. Like I didn't care what the game was. I wanted to watch. I don't know if it's going to change the way we watch football, but I think it's a thing, and that next year we're going to see an expansion of it. And I don't. Peyton Manning's not going to be the next John Madden, but he there's something there. There's something to him that he has that same aura as John Madden. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think he can be a guy that becomes like Mister Football now that you know John Madden has passed away. That's a great point. We'll see. He's rumored to be maybe in the, in the running for some ownership opportunities. So we'll see how that develops. That would obviously remove him from, from the media space. Um, I agree with you. I think that, you know, there's something Brian Curtis and I have talked about on pod before. I think the lesson is like people like the Mannings, right? Like the lesson is not if the Mannings go away, don't find two other guys to just randomly throw up there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I think there's probably going to be a lot of bad imitations. I will say the one thing I've noticed about the Manning cast. I love it. I watch it every time it's on. I don't remember what happens in the games. Like the game it's, for me, like I'm I'm just like, oh man, this Matthew Stafford hit is amazing. I love hearing him talk about it. Like I remember Drew, Bre- Drew Brees like kind of mumbling under his breath when Jameis Winston was not executing the offense. I think that was against Seattle. Yeah. Like by and large, I view the game so through the Mannings that I almost like forget about the game. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't like the guests. I think the guests take away from the game a lot. And maybe that's why that happens. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Well, I think, but I well, think and when it's just also, so, when it's those I two love talking, the Manning cast, but they don't know how to interview. They have no idea how to interview their no, guests. No, and it's, it's that in and of itself is sort except of charming. When they, except when Eli pretended to watch Slow News Day with Akeem Talib. That was the most important part of the, the entire thing. Um, but no, it was the... I, I, I agree with you. Nora, my thing on the guests is like... They should, they, instead of being like, hey, Akib, like, what's the deal with, uh, you know, with playing for the Rams or whatever, like, have them talk about the games. Like, that's why the Drew Brees, Matthew Stafford, like, those sort of, Russell Wilson, those sort of interviews are so arresting, 
is that they're just normally they're just like watching the game and giving analysis. Like just have those guys have when when Ray Lewis is on, have him be the third guy in the booth instead of just talking about what it was like mm-hmm. to win the Super Bowl or whatever. That's my take. Yeah. So I, I think there's two things because I lo- I watch the Manning cast over the normal broadcast, but I think they need two things. I think one is they need to be able to. I think they should be able to bring up the audio from the normal broadcast during okay. the Manning cast. I think the Mannings should be able to, if they just want to like take a minute and a half and sit there, they should be able to bring up the the traditional broadcast because it does do a better job at just like putting you in the game. And then to your point, I think what they struggle with in interviews is that it's, it's often very clear what they've decided is going to be the topic of conversation with a specific guest. And they're not great at pivoting when it's like the guest sort of isn't doing that with them. And maybe the answer there is just, just talk about the game. Just take us into the situational decision-making because that's what's so fascinating. And I agree with you in, in general that I don't find myself thinking as much about what happened in the game as what their sort of top moments on the Manning cast were. But the the exception to that is occasionally you'll get a, you know, you'll get a, a tight fourth quarter and they will take you into the situational football elements of it. And that's what's so great when they do that because they do a better job than the traditional broadcast with that stuff. So I, I think emphasizing that, de-emphasizing the times when it's like they want to talk to to Letterman about interviewing football people and he clearly wants to talk about like the bills and it, it just they're missing each other. I, I think they, if they did a little bit more of those two things, it would be really, really sustainable. We're picking nits, by the way. We all love the Manning cast. I love it. I love it. I love it. I hope it's for 18 games next year. Um, and the playoffs, maybe. Uh, all right. My number four, Chris Ballard. Um, without Chris Ballard, we have one less legitimate AFC contender. He got the game ball last week because he built a team that can sustain almost anything at this point. Um, we know about Quentin Nelson, Darius Leonard, Jonathan Taylor. We know about those guys. The depth, someone like Chris Reed, um, who can just, they signed for a million bucks, who's proven to be very valuable. Taking a flyer, and I know that that, that might be kind of strange language to say for a guy who's going to end up costing their first round pick, but when you're dealing with a starting quarterback, Carson Wentz was a flyer, basically. Um, they, they, he, he could have been minimized to the point that he didn't cost them all that much. Um, inactives on uh, last week, Ryan Kelly, Quentin Nelson, uh, Zach Pascal, Darius Leonard, Rocky Sin, Kari Williams, Andrew Sadejo, uh, Toure, Glowinski. Like they, there were so many guys out last week, and it didn't matter. And maybe part of that was the cliff implosion that we've talked about, but part of that is right now that the Colts are a team nobody wants to play, um, and they've built a, a, a machine. There. So Chris Ballard has done everything right. Uh, we talked about it on Sunday night. You know, we knew that Chris Ballard was great when when Andrew Luck retired and he didn't really make excuses. Coming from a regime, the Ryan Gregson regime, that makes excuses all the time. He knows how to GM. He's one of the best in the league, if not the best. He's number four. Nor number three. I have, for the record, I had I had Chris Ballard on a previous iteration of my list, and I think he's absolutely deserving. My number three, this is so where we're giving... So why you take him off? Is it because you think he's washed? No, I think he's fantastic. I just was... Mm. I don't know. Mm. I wanted to switch no, it up. You. We talked no, about no, it I before. Gotcha. I got you. You, uh, got him less, you got him lower than centers. That's a tough, tough look. 
My number three, also also a general manager. This is where we're sort of splicing a human in half. It goes to Bill Belichick, the general manager. Oh, wow. Because, Tuck, I mean, look, we want more competitive AFC teams, right? And they went out. They spent the most money in history. Mac Jones, in some ways, they got lucky. He fell to him, but they made the right call. And they turned around what was a pretty non-competitive roster into a team that is maybe not quite as good as we thought they were a couple weeks ago, but is a competitive playoff team with a quarterback in his first year. And uh, you can quibble with how much they paid for some of the players that they got in free agency. But, you know, you look at the impact Judon's made. You look at even someone like Kendrick Bourne, who I think they can use a lot more. But they they were able to find players to upgrade that roster pretty substantially in a very short Mm. period of time. And they spent a lot to do it. But you have to make the right decisions at, at least a plurality of the time. So... I think it's been a been a big year for Bill the GM. He's back. He's back. He, I mean, he's he was, back. He was like a bad season away from being put on watch. Watch, like not by yeah. Me, but well, by we the had. A, I public. was thinking about this. We had an argument with Danny Kelly when we were doing. Um, yeah, we talked about it. We talked last week actually. We were on doing the, coaches uh, and GMs. Yeah. And, and Danny was like. Coach. Yeah, and, and Danny had him as a top, top GM, which I thought was just absurd. Steven, Nora and I already put Bill the GM on Wash Watch over the summer. Danny Kelly didn't, though. He did not. He very much did not. Um, we were wrong. That's why we're, that's why we're apologizing now. Uh, Bill Belichick is my number three, by the way. Um, so we're, we're on the, the same boat. But it's Bill Belichick, the person, the full person. So Bill Belichick appears in this list one and a half times. Uh, Steven, you're number three? Uh, I'm going to go with Baker Mayfield. It's like a boring pick. And like no, it's not a boring why. pick. I mean, like, I think, like about, th- think about how important it would be if Baker Mayfield was good this year. That's a good point. But I, I'm coming from it, from the contract thing. I think this, this feels different than the Jared Goff thing just because of the connection he has with that fan base. It's bordering on a weird connection. Like, the people that were like, I'd rather lose with Baker Mayfield than win with Aaron Rodgers. Like, that's such a weird way to look at it. But he means something to Cleveland. And it's going to be hard for them to move on. Let's say he just totally falls off a cliff and he's terrible for the rest of the season. And it gets to the point where it's like, yeah, they should move on from him. I still think it's hard. It's going to be hard to do. It's going to be hard to explain to that fan base why they're giving up on the quarterback that brought them to the playoffs last year. Hard to explain? Yeah. I don't think it's going to be easy. That fan base is very it sounds attached like, to it sounds like they, you're, you're, Kevin, you're, I know you're, you're going to say just like, like roll t- the tape, like, but I, I agree with Steven. I think it's hard to... It's, and it's hard to explain is a weird for it's like it's like explain to a seven year old why why your parents are divorcing. Like it's fine. Like there's not gonna be a riot. Are you so sure about that? I don't know about a riot, <laughs> but there's going to be the equivalent like a social media okay. equivalent. Can I can, let me push back on this? Have Stefanski and Andrew Barry not earned enough credit in that fan base? You don't think they have? No, I don't think that's how Stefans- fan bases work. And Stefanski's getting criticized for his play calling, even though the quarterback can't throw the ball. I don't. He's getting criticized already. Odell got scapegoated for, because the quarterback was terrible. I, I don't know. I don't. I, you might like, be right. You might be right. You might be right. I, I just. I think that. I think Andrew Barry's one of the best gyms in football. Kevin Stanson's one of the best coaches in football. And Baker, at this point, the tape is pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, by the way, he has a fifth-year option next year. So I'm not even sure what they're going to do. I mean, they're not going to, Rodgers is probably not going to want to come to Cleveland. Russell Wilson's not going to want to come to Cleveland. So, like, they're going to, we, we talked about this on Sunday night, it's going to be like a Jimmy Garoppolo situation. And even that, like, would be more of a competition, I would guess. Yeah, I'll say this. Like, there are still Rams fans that defend Jared Goff. And if they're, if you're defending Jared Goff, I think you would, Cleveland Browns fans are more likely to defend Baker Mayfield. Like, he's done more for that franchise than I think Jared Goff did, even though Jared Goff got them to a Super Bowl. All right. I don't know. I, I, I think I think Browns fans just want to win. I think they'll take anything at this point. I, the, the, my only thought is that I think Baker's coming back no matter what because he doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of value and he's on the fifth-year deal. So I don't think they're going to, you know, they're not going to trade him for a fourth-round pick. I think he's coming back. It just might be a competition next year. So, Nora, number three or number two? My number two is Joe Burrow. For all the reasons we discussed at the top of this podcast, I think he's leveled up. And I I think that's, you see it on the field, but you also, you know, we we were talking about um, the matchups in the Kansas City game and and the need for him to be able to make some of those outside throws. There was a stat in that PFF piece that I was referencing where he's third in the NFL this season in over-the-shoulder throws to outside receivers. And he was doing a lot of that last year, but it just was not working out. He got 2.8 yards per attempt on those throws in 2020. He's getting 17.4 this season. And that to me is the perfect stat to tie together like on-field Joe Burrow and off-field Joe Burrow because that's just sort of like a badassery stat. And Mm -hmm. he has upgraded their talent level, but also I think he's upgraded just the attitude around that team. Sometimes it's funny. Like, do you guys realize that you're the Cincinnati Bengals? And I think they just don't. I think they feel like they're LSU, basically. Yeah, culture, he's a culture changer. He's totally a culture changer. And it's fun to watch. It's cool to see. Oh, gosh. Am I making a Bengals process take? I'm not sure. Maybe I am. But Joe Burrow is one of the people of the year. I completely agree with you. Um, he's been amazing. Steven, you hate Joe Burrow. Your take? I don't hate Joe Burrow. I don't know. I think... It's funny that he has a weak arm. It's it's funny to joke. How do you how do you how do you square that with the fact that he's leading the NFL and in bombs? Because that's not arm strength. Arm strength is driving the ball into tight windows. Anybody can throw that's about timing. Deep throws are about timing, not arm strength, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe that's just how I look at it. But some deep throws are also about having Jamar Chase. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, I think the Bengals front office and their one scout that they have deserve a lot of credit. Like, they consistently find talent. This was the case during the Marvin Lewis uh, era. Like, they consistently had one of the better rosters in the league, despite having Andy Dalton at quarterback, who made the playoffs almost every year. I and, really wanted to make, I really wanted to give this to Duke Tobin instead of Joe Burrow. And I actually, like, think he up. deserves it. It's just that, like, no one knows who he is. Because those receivers are a big reason why I think Joe Burrow is good on those downfield throws. I think he's, like, the perfect quarterback for T. Higgins and Jamar Chase, those, like, contested catch guys, because of how he throws the ball. And because he does have a weaker arm, and he, he, instead of driving those throws, he's placing them on the outside shoulder and they adjust to the ball because that's what they're good at. I think it's like a perfect marriage of receivers and quarterback. And I think the Bengals front office deserves a lot of credit. The offensive line stinks, but you can't fix everything. Duke Tobin love. That's right. Didn't see that coming. Um, all right. Who's your number two? Steven Ruiz? Uh, I'm going to go with Josh Allen and Justin Herbert. 
because I think we were getting to a point in draft discussion where we were discounting physical tools and how important size is and how important arm strength is. Oh, my God. Backlash to the Jamarcus Russell stuff. But like this stuff matters. <laughs> and we're seeing it with Baker Mayfield. Like he's he's taking hit. Like Mike Tannenbaum talks about these smaller quarterbacks with standing hits. And you look at the evidence, like Kyler Murray has fallen off every single season of his career in the second half. And it's hard to discount the fact that he's been injured in the second half. And he's a small player. And when he takes those hits, it makes it harder for him to throw a football. He's not throwing the football as well as he was in September. And I think size. It matters for a reason. Like, Russell Wilson has flaws as a quarterback because he's short. And people tiptoe around that, but it's true. Like, shorter quarterbacks have a harder time in the NFL. And I think these two quarterbacks are going to convince front offices to bet on physical talent more than they but were isn't that, in the past. Isn't that a really good way to screw up your franchise? Drafting like, Justin Allen, Herbert? No, no, no. I'm saying, just saying, like, okay, we're going to find. That, that was always the cautionary tale in front office with Josh Allen, it's like Josh Allen is one of one. He's a total no, no. Yeah. unicorn in that regard. And no, if you're going to go, yes? For me, it's just the physical talent thing. Like, bet no, on I understand phys- that. I'm, I understand well, that. And also, I think the way in which Josh Allen is not one of one is that there is a, there is a, a lesson to be learned in not paying enough attention to who the quarterback is throwing to in college, for better or right. for worse, right? Like, I, I think... Josh Allen is one of one in many ways, but there's probably something that you can take actually going forward that has applicability to other situations that says if the guy didn't really have a chance to develop as someone who had to make sort of touch throws and accuracy passes because the talent level was just such that he could rifle a ball into a window at the last second on a consistent basis, then you can pay attention to that in a way where you don't just write it off as, well, he's not accurate in college. He's never going to be accurate. It, I, right. I think there's something that has, also, has applicability yes. there. And also and, the Bills team building job around him helped Josh Allen as well. Josh Allen worked to get better every single year. I mean, that, that was the one thing. I think it was Bean, maybe McDermott. I don't, I don't really remember. Um, but it was, one of them said to me that the work ethic thing is, is, is the part of it that, um, you know, I, his ability to get better every single offseason at one thing, even, you know, when I talked to Alan over the summer and he said that there was just one route. They just went over, over and over and over again. He really wanted to throw this route over the middle. Um, and, and he got it. He did it. And I think that you marry that with the physical tools, all that stuff. Um, there's a real case to be made that if Josh Allen was drafted by another team, it wouldn't have worked. There's a real case to be made that he just, you know, uh, was never going to improve his accuracy, blah, blah, blah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a mistake to pass on Josh Allen because so many teams would have screwed up Josh Allen. Yeah. I, I'm just, I think those guys have hit more often of late than the like traditional pocket passer. Guy. Like Mac Jones might turn into a great quarterback, but like before him, like the Jarek Goffs, the guys that can't move rarely work out in the post 2011 CBA NFL. I think it's harder to build up those quarterbacks and get them to a point where they're clicking like Joe Burrow. He did it in two years. It's amazing that he did it, but like I see the skepticism with those type of players who need to win with their mind more than their arm. But Joe Burrow also can move. Like he can't move he can like Kyler Murray, but he can move. Oh yeah, yeah, he can move. But I, I don't know. I, th- I think he was more of a quarterback that's going to beat you with his mind than having like an awesome arm. Like Josh sure, Allen. sure. Wow. 
lot of Burrow takes. Um, all right. My number two is Aaron Rodgers. Um, you think about somebody who controlled kind of the destiny of football this year in the offseason. If he hadn't shown up in July, um, completely different conversation around everything. The Packers are not NFC contenders, probably the NFC favorite at this point. Um, he dominated the offseason in a way that we also talked about some of the other guys. Um, and now what he does next offseason, whether that's forcing his way to Denver, whether that's trying to go somewhere else, Pittsburgh, for instance, um, he really has um, not only the 2021 season, but the 2022 season in the palm of his hand. And what he decides to do, you know, I think that from a football standpoint, Green Bay is the best place for him. The line is only going to get better. Uh, if if Bakhtiari comes back at some point, we'll have to see what Devontae Adams does. But he, Devontae Adams is one of the best receivers in football. Um, that's home for him. And if he stays there, they're a contender. If he leaves and goes to a Pittsburgh um, or, hell, Miami, as we already talked about, then they become a contender. Uh, there's very, very few people you can say that about, and Aaron Rodgers is one of them. So fascinated to see what he does the next couple of weeks. I think they're going to make the Super Bowl, and they might win the Super Bowl. I think I picked them to win the Super Bowl. I don't remember who won my hypothetical Super Bowl. Um, but it's Aaron Rodgers. So. Nora, number one? It's funny that, that, is, that that's yours, because my number one is jointly awarded to Matt LaFleur and Brian Gutekunst. The non-Aaron Rodgers members of the Packers triumvirate, because I, I agree with you, they are the team that has been the most consistent in this season that's been so up and down for so many teams, you know, aside if you don't, if you don't count week one and you don't count Jordan Love playing, they don't have an embarrassing loss. And even among the contending teams, it's very rare to be able to say that this season. And part of that is obviously Rodgers, but I think it really speaks to the coaching and the depth of the roster in particular because they have had, other than the Ravens, they have been so unbelievably injured this season. And the fact that with a good amount of offseason drama and with a crazy amount of injuries, they have just sort of plugged along and looked like the best, most consistent team in the NFL, I think really, really speaks to the people leading the organization. And there's always going to be a question of sort of how to divide the credit when the quarterback is as good as Rogers is. But I think that this season when, you know, in the rear view, you're never going to take away that element, but I think we're going to look back on it and go, the infrastructure there was really, really, really important to this year for the Packers. So congratulations to Matt LaFleur and Brad Kudkins. My only take on this, I love Matt LaFleur. He's so much better than Mike McCarthy. It's not even funny. But Rodgers is the is the key there. That's why I had him number two. I thought about Gutenkunst, thought about Lafleur, but if you take Rodgers out, it's just a completely different conversation. I think we saw that with the Jordan Love week, even though it was a weird week, and kind of put in a separate category. But we saw what that looks like. So, congratulations to Lafleur and Gutenkunst for supporting Rodgers. But Rodgers is is the key piece. Stephen, number one. <laughs> My number one is Brandon Staley. And this isn't like... I Jesus think Christ. Right. I knew that was coming. And this isn't that he's like that's some great coach that I think is going to be the next Bill Belichick. I don't... He could get fired in a couple weeks or a couple of years. I don't know. But the conversations that he's influenced, I, I think he's, he's touched on like everything about football that we've analyzed this year. Like the two high stuff, that was him last year. Everyone was writing about how he was playing defense, the fourth down decision stuff. As, as Dominique Foxworth said, the too high thing, first I put one safety back, then they put two safeties back. 
That was the second thing they ever did. We've been doing this for a while. But that that's minimizing what they did. Like they figured out how to stop the run and and stop the uh, deep passes at the same time. Like it was cool. Was it, had, was it to have Aaron way. Donald? Was it to have Aaron Donald? I did mean, that, that was part of it. Yeah, good play. Like Bill Belichick had, had Tom Brady. Are we not going to give him credit for that? Like the Rams have Aaron Donald now, and their defense is fine. He did something well with that defense last year, and like Patrick Mahomes sucked for the first half of the season because of the stuff that Brandon Staley was doing. And, and how people adapted to it this year. I think it's a big deal that he did that. And then and what the happened? Down stuff. <laughs> they figured it out. But when you stump Patrick Mahomes for, uh, for two months, I think you deserve credit. And Russell Wilson went through it last year. He's like, quarterbacks have had to change how they play because of the Rams defense last year. And I think that matters. I'm putting. Well, I'm I'm sending a banner to El Segundo to the practice facility that says, "I our idea stopped Patrick Mahomes for two months." That hey, that's a that's it's a not great accomplishment. The Colts hung a banner for getting to the AFC title game. I think you can. Uh, yeah, stop I guess who's not getting to the AFC title game? How dare you! Andy's a okay, great. He would I'm, be a great podcaster. Andy follows me on Twitter, I, which I just found out. He I does. Know. Yeah. So, shout out to him. Great person. Um, okay, so I think that there's... Our listeners just learned what it takes to get on the best people of 2021 list. Yeah. Wow. Baker Mayfield um, does not follow me, and I still put him on. Belichick follows me on his burner. Um, okay, so... Um, I, I, I like Brandon Staley. And part of the reaction to... Part of the reason it comes off is me not liking Brandon Staley is that everybody in my life, I think, has overstated the influence and the success of Brandon Staley. And so I push back on it as a just kind of a football contrarian in that sense. Just like, let's win some, let's win some games first. Um, let's do it for more than a couple of years. Like if this is that I, I I joke a lot about how we've we've based a lot off of his press conferences. And I think the way he talks about football is remarkable. And I'm really, really glad he exists. As someone who loves talking about football, uh, I've never spent any time with him. But you know, just just getting his thoughts on football is really great. I mean, you even we've all talked about this offline, but like this is a guy Brandon Staley who a couple of years ago was writing blogs um, for like scheme websites, right? Like he's no he's no different than than Dan, if Danny Kelly put on a headset and started started putting two safeties back there, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's a, it's a two step process: put on a headset, put two safeties back there, boom, you're an NFL head coach. Um, <laughs> And and so um, I love the guy. I just think that the conversation around him is about five steps too too far. No, I. It's not about him, his talent as a coach. Like I don't know if he's a good head coach. It's about the conversations that he started and like what he represents. It could be anybody else that that did this, but like he's ta- he's talking about how you don't need a, a run game to set up play action. We've never heard a coach say that. We've never heard a coach talk about fourth downs the way he does. Maybe John Harbaugh. Yeah, John but- Harbaugh. But he's having these conversations weekly that we've never heard an NFL coach have, and I think it's refreshing. And I, I don't care if he doesn't win any. I think Kevin Stefanski. I think Kevin Stefanski was doing the the play action thing too, the no, the no run game for play action thing too. I know he's I not know. the first coach to do it, but he does it. He's doing all of this stuff. He is better at it. He's better at it. There's something to be said for being a really good communicator. Like that stuff does matter. I, I don't know that it necessarily wins you any games, and that's a valid point. And I think the one that you're making, Kevin, but he is really good at it. And regardless well, of how this Charger season ends, I think he's influenced the, the NFL as a whole. Like, he's influenced 
the best teams in the league. The Bills, we've talked about dealing with too high, the Chiefs. And it's not just playing Chiefs too high season. It's how they play. And I think he's changed the NFL. Okay. I think Joe Burrow is more influential than Brandon Staley. That's Joe where, that's where that's the If we're talking about winning games, Joe Burrow couldn't beat Brandon Staley. And he threw a couple interceptions in that game. Couldn't deal with the two high safeties. <laughs> Mike dropped. Uh, time for my number one, which I forgot to say because I was so eager to wrap the podcast after Stephen Ruiz's mic drop. Um, Tom Brady. Like, I, I joked about this in the past, but the, the, the tweet that, that explains everything was there was a viral tweet right around last February that was from someone, wasn't even a journalist, who said that Tom Brady really looked at a team and said, y'all want to go to the Super Bowl? Like, that's what happened. That's what happened. He took a team that was a 10-win team, 11-win team, and then they won three road games. They got better. They won three road games, and they, they, they went to the Super Bowl. Um, and I don't think anyone, even though that they, they had to go out and they didn't have home field advantage and them to buy, I don't think anyone thought that was a, a, a weak win. Um, they're really, really good. This year, saw a stat this morning, actually. Brady survived 31 dropped passes, according to PFF. Only Trevor Lawrence has more dropped passes this year. Um, he's still elevating everybody around him at age 44. It's unbelievable. He's throwing downfield. Um, his depth target is, according to PFF, is... His depth of target is behind only 2017 for his uh, his deepest passes on on record. Um, so he's just still got it. And, you know, in the same way, you can't rank Aaron Rodgers number two and say he controls the NFL and not rank Tom Brady number one because he literally can can make a team a Super Bowl contender overnight. Um, you know, I was actually thinking about this the other day. The best what if in modern football is that he had two contract offers in 2020 one was the bucks and one was the chargers and you think about the butterfly effect if you had cho- cho- chosen the chargers if you know our herbert wouldn't be there we'd be debating brandon staley somewhere else or he'd still be a coordinator um there's just so many things that he's influenced his decision influenced his play is influenced um it looks like there are two coordinators right now and todd bowles and brian leftwich we're going to get serious 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 uh, NFL head coaching opportunities next year. It looks like Byron Leftwich might be the, the Jacksonville guy. Um, so you think about Tom Brady, the decision he made, the play he's had. I don't think anybody can be more influential right now in the modern NFL. I've never seen a player in their prime at age, in their 40s. Like at this, obviously, I've never seen a player play into their 40s, but he's better now than he was in like 2016. I think that was peak Brady during the New England era. I, it's amazing to watch, and he's good in all the ways you wouldn't expect a quarterback like Tom Brady because he doesn't get a lot of credit for his arm strength, but this guy is throwing like very difficult throws at age 44. It's amazing. If only he'd invented two high safeties. I mean, the Bucks did use a lot of two high safeties in that Super Bowl. They did. They won it. They didn't have, they didn't have Brandon Staley. No, but Brandon's doing it. Brandon Staley kicked their ass last year and they took the lessons that they learned from that game and applied it to the Chiefs and they won a Super Bowl. I'm sure Brandon that the, Staley, nasty, the nasty defensive line and the nasty speed they had all over the field had nothing to do with it. Brandon Staley changed the culture in Tampa. <laughs> Brandon Staley honed Tom Brady into the man he is today. Oh, goodness. Um, that's a great place to end it. Thank you to Stefan Anderson for his production help. Thank you to Arjuna Ramakopal for production supervision. It's been the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We will be back on Sunday with another recap. See you then. 